0: Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen.
1: See my bleeding, dying.
0: Notice in your bulletin that today's reading is found in two separate books in the Bible, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. Uh, again, in the blue pew Bible, they, that can be found on page 1011. 1011 and the second half of this reading is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13. you will go have to turn back to page 957 for that one. So I'll give you a moment to find those, James chapter 1, 13 through 18 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.
1: Let us pray. Lord, give us grace to understand your word, to hide it in our hearts, and to live it out in the whole of our lives. Bless us, Lord, to that end, because apart from your spirit, we will do no good thing. Apart from you, Lord, we will do no good. But you are the faithful Savior who continues always to do good to us. Goodness and mercy follows us. All things work together that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. And so even now, Lord, you are faithful in your continued work to make us into the image of Christ. And a glory to your name. We rest in you for that. Amen. Uh, When he says here, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Probably for most of us, we don't literally say that, you know, like, God tempted me in this, but we have ways to get around it. You know? We have ways of saying that it really wasn't me or it really wasn't my fault, um, which brings us to this first point, it's not God but you that's involved in temptation, okay? It's not God, but it's you. Second point is, no, it really is not God. Okay, <laughs> that's your two points this morning. Uh, the first part is 13 through 15, and the second, uh, 16 through 18. Um, but it's not God, it's it's you. He says, don't anyone say when he's been tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Now, it's you can't see it in the English translation, but the word for testing or trial that we've seen in this passage so far, up in verse 2, and then... In the, at the end of that, verse twelve, those two bookends that uh, have this that, that contained a section about trials. This is the same word, okay, but it's looked at from two different ways. One is the external circumstance of trial and temptation, into which God obviously puts us, and He's sovereign in that regard. But the, the, what's being talked about here in verse thirteen is that inward. Draw that inward lure, that inward part of us that wants sin and desires sin and is prone to sin. And he's saying here, don't let anyone think that the issue or the problem in temptation and sinning has anything to do with God or what he's done to, to cause this to happen or to be on the side of sin in any way. What we, we tend to blame God by blaming other people, don't we? You know, it was, if you knew my wife, if you knew my husband, oh, my children, they do it to me. They really do it to me. That's why I lose it, because of my children. Or that guy at work, if it weren't for him, you know, that kind of thing. Or it could be circumstances. If this set of circumstances hadn't brought on this pressure, I wouldn't have exploded like that. It can even be, I just have, that's just me. That's just the way I am. That's the way I've always been, and I'm just going to be that way. And of course, that in itself is a way to say, it's really God's fault for allowing me to get into this condition. (laughs) And uh, I I can't do anything about it, and I don't have to do anything about it. And in each of these cases, it's a way of giving ownership of our life to something other than ourselves, to push responsibility away from us. So I don't have to bear that responsibility, and I don't have to do anything about it. It's a kind of allegiance or worship or even a kingship that we give to other things to say, these things rule over me, and I can't help my situation. And so what James is saying here is that Desire begins in the heart. Sinning begins with me. Now, you know, one version of it for me is uh, driving along on the highway and I'm having this private conversation with myself and the person that's in the left lane. Okay, And I'm saying things like, the left lane is not made so that you can do-si-do for 20 minutes down the line, you know. It's not made so that you can hook arms with the guy next to you. You can rub shoulders and y'all can hold hands. Car, uh, you know, going. The, the lane is for passing. Not that I've ever said anything like that. but um. And then it really gets to me when I'm going along, you know, right at the good clip you want to be, whatever that is. And... And a truck, he could have stayed in the right lane and I would have been by him in three seconds. No, he has to pull out. I have to brake for him and wait 20 minutes, it seems like, or two hours, it seems like. And we're almost getting around the truck and we hit a hill and he starts backing down. And then we're going back again and I just know I've lost an hour, you know. I would hate to know that I probably lost 30 seconds, you know, for all that grief and anger and, you know, pain. But it's so easy at that point to think, you know, the reason I'm upset is that this truck is in the left lane. No, the reason you're upset, Darwin, is your heart. That's the only reason you're upset. If you're doing anything wrong, if you have a wrong attitude toward whoever it is in that car or truck... It has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with who you are, what you are, how you see your life, how you see God even at this moment. Even something as simple as that. So it's not God, but you. And his argument is that God first cannot be tempted with evil. So the idea is here's God, here's evil over here. God cannot, is never tempted. By evil, he's never tempted, and certainly he's never over here on evil's side. Never. He's never on this side then, pulling, luring us, trying to get us, open the way for us to sin. Because he can't even be tempted by evil, John says. And so he certainly tempts no one. But how is each person tempted It's when we're lured and enticed, and he uses uh, fishing or trapping imagery there uh, of luring and enticing. Uh, We're lured and enticed by our own desire. You, Darwin, are responsible not to let this deadly chain of events of desire and sin and death occur. You, Darwin, are responsible for this. And in all of our talk about God's sovereignty and salvation and God's power that must work within us, without which we can make no progress at all, we can do nothing good, as Jesus says, nonetheless, the responsibility, even over our desire, lies with us. Now, the good part of this, the the important part of this, is if you keep saying that you are a victim... If you keep saying it's something else or somebody else, then first of all, there can be no confession so as to receive forgiveness. First of all, you're cutting yourself off from experiencing the reality of fully facing what you are and what you do and how you think to say, I did that, I said that to my wife because that's how bad a person I am. That's, that's the way I think. As I've told uh, several of you in, in teaching situations, there have been times where, I, in the past where I'd be in a quiet time, a devotion, being so holy, you know, so given up to God. And Kay, not knowing what was going on, interrupts me. And I'm short with her, you know, like tense with her. I must have really been holy and loving toward God. For her interruption from it to cause me anger. Think, where in the world is your heart? And it'd be so easy to say, well, if she hadn't interrupted me while I was reading the Bible. You know. No. If your heart had been in the right place while you were reading the Bible, you know, then you would have had a response of love to her. You would have been kind and tender to her. If this word was really having its effect in your life, it would... It would cause you to be gentle toward her. So, it, the first thing is just the beauty and glory of being able to admit the reality of just what I think sometimes and just how I feel sometimes. This came out of me. This was because that's what my heart is like. This, I said that. Jesus says, the, the mouth speaks out of that which filled the heart. I said that because that's what I'm like. But the beginning of that is to fully admit to others and to God so that you can receive forgiveness of sins. And some of us... Our, our limitation of understanding the extent of God's forgiveness and the, the finished work of Christ and how He takes all of our sins away makes us feel like we have to keep defending ourselves and playing like we're not really that sinful because we don't have a Christ that can wash us clean. So ask yourself that question. Am I in this mode of uh, uh, self-protection, self-justification, self justification? Uh, series of excuses for whatever so that I can't admit to my wife or my children. I can't w- admit to my husband. I can't admit to others. I can't admit to myself that that's really what I'm like because I really don't have a Jesus that can cover that sin. So we cut ourselves off from the amazing love of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and Secondly, we cut ourselves off from real grace to change. You know. If you're a victim, then you can't do anything about it. Now, that's, that allows you to wallow in your sin. It allows you to continue in your sin. But it's also, this, there's this sense of helplessness. It's done to me. What can I do about it? But if it's something I'm doing, and then something that God's grace can Uh, change, then I can make progress in my life, but I've got to admit what I am and admit what what I've done, admit how I think, because there's no hope for change. There's nothing to do if I'm just a victim in it. And one of our ways to do this is I've got it worse than anybody else. Oh yeah, wait, you don't know how bad it is. Reminds me of the far side where this This guy sitting there, he doesn't just have a wooden leg, he has a wooden head. Far side, you know, far side. And the guy sitting next to him has just heard his story about losing his head. He says, yeah, well, that's nothing. As he goes on about how bad he's got it, you know. And that's our tendency is no matter what I'm going through, nobody has gone through the kind of things I've gone through. Nobody's had the background as bad as I have had. Nobody's had the hurt and pain like I have had. Nobody's had the situation or has the situation with the particular pressures that I have. And of course, that's why Paul's words in First Corinthians 10 are so important. No sin has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. That kind of diffuses it, doesn't it? So that I can't keep this sense of victim about me. I, I can't make the excuse that I have it harder than anybody else because other believers, just as weak and helpless, have, uh, are depending upon God's grace to change in very similar circumstances. And so, by God's grace, I can find that grace. Uh, I, by God's grace, I can change as well. But that's just another way that we make an excuse. We've got it worse than anybody else. And really, if there's no confession, there's no admitting, we can't experience His forgiveness, we can't experience His change. And thirdly, one part of that is that you're still at the center of your universe doing what you want to do. because That's really what this is all about. Defending my turf so that I can't really admit or won't really admit that it's me allows me to just keep being me. All right? Just keep doing the thing I'm doing. Just keep my same habit, my same uh, uh, turmoil of sin, my my same merry-go-round or treadmill of sin and, and practice and habit uh, if I can continue to be a victim in it. So it's the hardest thing in the world to admit that it's me. That's what I'm like. But it's the most liberating thing in the world. To experience forgiveness, to begin to experience change, to be able to be given by God this new perspective where you can do something about what what you are. You can be a really different husband than you are. You really can, by God's grace. Even though your wife would think, no no way he's going to be any different than he's been. You can really be a different wife in significant ways, a different... In, in so many ways, because as it says in ephesians three uh, his he 's able to do exceedingly beyond all we could ask or think according to the power that works within us so we're, we're we're told it's it's god it's not god it's you and and the thing that James underscores by giving us this pathway of sin and, and, and this he's really drawing from Genesis 3 and the fall of, of Eve and, and then Adam. And he's really saying that sin has always, from the beginning, it's had this pathway. That it begins with desire, which leads to sin, which leads to death. And of course, the point is to always connect evil desire, a desire for that which is opposed to God's will with death. And the contrast between enduring and trusting God in verses 2 through 4 leading to uh, fullness and completion of character. So endurance leads to character, giving away to sin, and desire leads to death. Now, of course, this doesn't mean desire for good things, but it's it's desire for that which is opposed to God's will. And at the root of, of getting rid of that kind of desire or fighting against that desire is to have a desire for good, obviously. And we'll talk about that in a little in, in a minute. Um, but just to underscore for each of us to, to to realize behind the temptation lurks the enemy himself. And that is the connection here with death. That the enemy would destroy me. The enemy would ruin relationship. The enemy would cut my legs out from under me. The enemy would draw me away from God. The enemy would promote my pride. The enemy would deaden my heart to the grace of God. All of these things the enemy is out for. But he's always, as the great Puritan said, he shows the bait and not the hook. You know, Always putting the bait out there, the bait out there, the bait out there always reminds me of the angler fish on the bottom, you know. It looks just like a rock, just like the coral and rock and everything down there. And he's just got this little rod, and at the end of it's a worm, you know. And that worm is saying to every fish, this is so good and delicious. You want this? You've got to have it, you know, and they see it. They see the, the deliciousness of this worm that's apparently wiggling helplessly in the water, just waiting to be eaten. Um, and, of course, they get eaten themselves. And that's a picture uh, that he's giving us of sin. Uh, that which we desire ends up in death itself. So to keep that clarity there. In fact, when he says desire has conceived, there's the idea here of, of uh, seed bearing fruit and the idea of being fertilized, okay? And the question arises well, what is it being fertilized with? Well, if the word brings forth new life in verse 18, it's likely that he's thinking falsehood, the lie, the lie of walking away from God's will, this lie of falsehood, of finding happiness and meaning and purpose away from God's will, that lie fertilizes sin and causes sin to conceive itself, which is the same with Eve herself. Because at that point, she felt like, if I turn away from God, I actually will find life. I actually will find well-being. That's the falsehood. That we fall to, and James is warning us against. Now, in verse sixteen and following, as we've said, it's not God but you. And in verses sixteen through eighteen, it's as though James says, "No, no, really, it's not God. Okay, it's really not God." Verse sixteen: Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Does that look full backwards as to what he's just said? Perhaps, do not be deceived in this. World of temptation, do not be deceived in this desire that leads to sin. Don't be deceived that it does not lead to death. Perhaps that's what he's talking about. The point is that it's self-deception, right? You deceive yourself, and there's the idea of willing deception. It's not blind or helpless deception because he says, Don't be deceived, don't fool yourself, don't kid yourself. To think that this isn't the process of sin. Don't play around with that as though there are no consequences if I do this thing. Because sin in some way edges us to death. It is harmful to us. Don't be deceived. But he could be looking forward. I lean toward that. Uh, Don't be deceived about this character of God who would stand on this side tempting you and luring you to sin. Because here's what he is like. So he's all the more here reinforcing the fact that it is certainly not God who is tempting you because God is the one who gives every good gift and every good and perfect gift. These things always have their origin in him. And it's very likely that he's not just talking about gifts in general here because he moves on to talk about the fact that he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. He most likely centrally is talking about the spiritual good that constantly comes to us from, from God. That pertains to the context. Uh, it's not just a... And, and oh, by the way, remember, all good gifts come from God. But it's a way to tie in here and say, and look... God is constantly pouring out rich and good things for your obedience. He's giving you the wisdom from above, as it's described later in chapter 3. The wisdom to live out the love of God in the midst of difficult trials. When you are tempted to abandon your obedience to God, He continually gives you every good and perfect gift and He does so unchangeably. He's the Father of lights. This is pointing to the fact that He's the Father of the sun and the moon and the stars, indicating His absolute power. But then unlike those lights that have variation in their shining, even the sun sometimes, uh, you know, there's an eclipse, there is no variation. There's not the tiniest change of God. He is always one way towards you. He is doing you spiritual good. All the time. He is giving His Spirit to you. He is affording you His Word, and He gives His Spirit to affect you by this Word. Why? Go back to how you even got here. He says, It's by His will that He brought you uh, forth by the Word of truth. It wasn't your will, it wasn't your initiative. You say, well, God in some way is involved in my sin. No, God began your spiritual life. He brought you forth by His Word. And there's no change from that beginning this spiritual life in you by bringing you forth through the truth so that you're the first fruits, uh, as He's saying to these people. You're the the beginning work of God on earth uh, through the gospel this God is not going to be over here luring you in a different direction. And so far from our doubting and wondering where was God in the midst of a certain situation or maybe God was against me spiritually in that situation, is is on the whole other side to realize God is always, always working in my heart. God wants to change me infinitely more than I want to be changed. I'm never having to pull God and beg Him in a way to please change me and He just doesn't want to change me. That's never the case. God desires infinitely to bring transformation. He is always bringing every good gift and every perfect gift to us spiritually. It's a great encouragement to us so that because He is doing this, there's no temptation that's overtaken us that He will not provide the escape for. And that means that in every situation we find ourselves, in every situation, we can have the encouragement, God has called me to this in order for the opportunity to trust him and live out the love of God and the glory of God. Every situation is a calling to live out this good and perfect gifts that he will give me in the midst of it. What an, what an excitement this can give us when we're facing difficult circumstances. And in our own uh, relationships, especially, in, in marriage, for instance, to believe that, uh, first of all, of course, to recognize what I am and what I've done in my marriage. One of the, one of the most basic things that I've found again and again in counseling couples is getting both of them not pointing the finger at the other one. Usually it comes in, he's got his story, she's got her story. And sometimes they don't sound like the same story. You know? It's like, do you all live in the same house? Are you sure this is your wife? You sure this is your husband? Because if what you say is true, then what he says is of course Jeremy probably finds something very different, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> he's smiling. Yeah, that's a common. Um and one of the most serious, one of the most critical things is for each person to begin to own his side, her, to own her side, to begin to ask the question of Psalm 139 at the end of that psalm, the question or the the uh, the prayer to God, search me and know me and see if there be any hurtful way in me and leave me in the way everlasting. That's a real prayer of humility, isn't it? It's not... Search her, know her, see if there be any hurtful way in her, and please change her. You know. (laughs) But I dare say that's the way that's really the prayer many times we're praying in conflict. She needs to, he needs to change. And isn't it interesting? Both people can be thinking the same thing. And probably both of them are right. (laughs) It's just that you can't see it yourself can't see it yourself. And so we we must guard ourselves against this self-deception that allows us to be such victims so impregnable, impregnable that we cannot admit what we are. We cannot begin to admit the extent to which we've sinned against others and sometimes toward those we love most. And then to begin to ask the question before God, Oh, Lord God, if you are the God who's brought me forth by your word, if you're the God who constantly sends or flows to me, if I trust you, every good and perfect spiritual gift, and there's no change ever, and you do it in a sovereign way because you're the God of the stars and the sun and the moon, then maybe there's a possibility that I could change and be a different person. Because that's the God that you are. You're not a God who puts me in desperate situations where I cannot change and I have to be the same. You've not created me as a result of a series of events or pain or experiences that makes me the kind of person that just has to stay where I am spiritually. You haven't done that. He hasn't done that. He's a different God. He's a God that pours out rich gifts upon His children. So by God's grace, let's trust Him. Let's believe Him. And and if you've never begun to trust Jesus to start with, uh, maybe, maybe you've never admitted fundamentally that you need to be forgiven by God. Maybe you've not thought about what separates you from God, that this bent on self uh, destroys a relationship with God. That this bent on self means that you must have your sin taken care of by God. That that you must be restored to God. And God has accomplished a great work in sending His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who really is God in the flesh, to pay for sin, to bear the punishment that we deserve. And that's the beginning place for change glorious beginning place is to experience before God His forgiveness that He has accomplished for you. And and in seeing that goodness and that love and that that glory and beauty of God through Christ, the, the beginning of a different desire is created in your heart. It's a desire to love that God, to know that God, to give yourself to that God, to have that God, a God who would do that, a God who would act that way. In Christ Jesus. That's the beginning of any change. Because as Paul says. It's now the love of Christ that governs us. In the next verse there in 2 Corinthians he says. Now we no longer live for ourselves. But for him who died for us. Get that? Why do I no longer live for myself? I'm living for someone who died for me. I'm living for someone who sacrificed for me. I've found out who God really is. He's a God who loves so intensely that He sacrifices for others. Let us pray. Lord, bless us that we will own our sin, that far from blaming you or making excuses or blaming someone else as a guise for blaming you, Lord, that we will fully own what we are, so that we can fully experience your forgiveness and the grace to change, so that we, by your grace, can really act and do something about our situation, our habits, our practices. Lord, that we will take full responsibility by your grace, really seeing transformation in our lives. And, oh, Lord, may all the more we trust in the great unchanging God who reigns spiritual good upon his people, who has begun spiritual life in us and will continue relentlessly to bring us to that final day of completion and perfection. Oh Lord, thank you for your commitment to us to do us good and that all things work together for that good and not against us. Bless us, for we pray in Jesus name.
0: pleasing scene' clouded with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you.
1: Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America.
0: Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light. Oh, come with blissful rain.
1: Break rain